Welcome to Black Writer Therapy, a podcast where Black women writers are invited to sit on the proverbial couch, have a cup of tea, and share the stories behind the stories, and what it really takes to write books about Black women in an industry that still prefers white as the default. I'm your host, published author and unlicensed therapist, Alishine. Black Writer Therapy is now in session. Facing Hawkins Adams is an award-winning author and former journalist who crafts fiction and nonfiction that helps readers find relevance in their own story. She has penned nine women's fiction novels and two nonfiction books, including The Essence Bestseller, The Someday List, The Target Store Recommended Read, Coming Home, and The Perennial Reader's Favorite, Watercolored Pearls. Hello, Miss Stacy Hawkins. Hello. It has been a whirlwind getting you here, <laughs> but I am so, so very happy that we uh that we finally made it onto the Zoom call. How are you doing? I am doing well. I'm glad we made it here as well. It has definitely been a journey, just a scheduling journey and then <laughs> a Zoom journey and you know, recording journey, but here we are. Yes. Yes. And you look fabulous by the way. So thank you. <laughs> at the, and at the end of the day too, you look fabulous. I put, so I put lipstick on for you. <laughs> thank you. I you know I did I did lip gloss. I did a little lip gloss. Yeah. That's yeah, the I best I can do. Day, but I was off camera most of the day. So I was like, okay, let me put some lipstick on. Let me do a little <laughs> something, something. Right. I, yeah, I hear you. Um, okay. So I, I like to kind of go through the bio and all that stuff. But before we even get into that, I have to ask my favorite question. How are you feeling? Oh, that's a tough. How am I healing today? So when you ask the question, you're asking in terms of literally today, like within this 24 hour period. Yeah. Wow, that's a tough one today. Um, last week, my, my daughter's 25 and she's getting married in eight months and um, she's very close to her future in-laws. And so am I. Uh, our families have merged. They've been dating oh, about four years. And so her future father-in-law passed away last week. Oh, and my we goodness. Funeral and so today's a little bit emotionally charged because I talked to her and she's having a tough time and her fiance and they're questioning whether they need to have the wedding. And so it's, yeah, I mean, they, they're still going to get married. They're just wondering, do they, should they just elope and scrap their plan? So it's, it's interesting because they're 25 and they're 26. And so they're young. And of course it's mm-hmm. dad. And so you're on that journey with your child. So it's, it's been a, it's been an emotional day because I'm, I'm mothering. I've been mm-hmm. working and all of that. And just my heart is with her and with them. And, um, you know, just remembering being young and hopeful and just to kind of have this happen in the middle of that. So that's kind of where I am. I'm, I'm, I've, I've had a lot of grief in my life. I've lost some siblings. Both of my parents are deceased. So I personally know what that journey is like. Right. And I think this is probably taking me back there a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. I can see how that would be triggering. Yeah. Wow. I'm sorry to hear that. I am sorry to hear that. I, I do remember being 25 and, and planning my wedding. And yeah. Going yeah. through all of it. And the whole time I was thinking, I don't even believe in marriage. <laughs> that's an interesting. Now, that's another conversation. That's interesting. <laughs> I've seen a happily married woman. I just never, I never saw it. Wow. Ever. 
Like there were women in my family who were, they were happily married wives, but not happily married women. Like they, they were good in now the wife role. That's great. interesting. You gotta explain that to me now. Okay. Like when, like when there's like, um, I look at my, my aunt case, right? My mom was just, we're not, anyway. So my aunties who were married, like they, they were very vibrant women when they were not around their husbands and not doing the whole family thing. And you could tell that when they were like in the house or doing the whole I'm a wife, that it was a completely different headspace. And they didn't seem, and they weren't, let me stop saying they seem, no, they were not like vibrant and they didn't shine. And there was no like, ooh, light in their eyes. And I was like, I don't know if I'm willing to give up my womanhood to be your wife. Wow. wow, that's pretty deep, Ella. You got to write about that. That's deep. That's all I write about because I'm still confused. Look, after. But I get it. I absolutely get that because our society yeah. reveres being a wife. And in many ways, you got to like, you got to like be less of yourself. Exactly. Because then the man that you married, he loved you as your woman, right? But then, of course, now that you're his wife, he sees you as his wife, and God forbid, y'all get have you know get to having babies, and now you're the mother of his children, and he can't see the woman in you anymore. So then he can't see it, and how are you supposed to see all of your womanness if he's not reflecting that back to you? And you just say, okay, well, this is what I have, this is what I chose. Let me be happy as a wife and mom, and I'll just. You know, my novel, The Someday List, that is exactly my character, Rochelle's journey. I saw this in your um, in your bio and I was like, I don't know what this book is about, but I have to go get it because it sounds so much like I was thinking in my mind. It sounds like <laughs> this woman has put up or somebody and it's a woman. This woman has put up everything she's ever wanted in life because she was playing the role. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly what it was. And, and her a, a dying friend challenges her and other people to make a list of the things that they want to accomplish. And she tries to do it that evening after this party. And she can write a list for her husband. She can write a list for her children. She can't get past number one on her own list. And number one, she gave up to become a wife. There you go. So the book is about her journey to figuring out what should be on her someday list. Now, isn't that strange and horrible. So what, I, I actually wrote that book because that was my fourth novel and I would be out like on book tours or I'd be getting emails from women, but mostly on book tours. You know, you're signing books with pe for people, women, and they'd be like, oh my goodness, I'm so proud of you. Or, oh, this is so amazing. You're living your journey. I can't do that. Or it's too late for me. And I'd be like, it's not too late for you. Or yes, you can. I've right. been saying that multiple times in different cities and different spaces. So I wanted to write a book to encourage women that your someday list can be your today list. Oh. I'm no different than anybody else. Yes, I had to wake up super early in the morning. I had to get my kids on team mommy so I could take my little writing breaks. But I'm no different than anybody else. So that's literally, that's why that book was written because wow. women were saying that to me. Wow, yeah, I was like, I have to read this book. It kind of, that title just kind of just like, boom, it hit me right there. And I was like, I have to go find this book. I've got to find this book. I'm still married, right? <laughs> still married. We've been together since high school. Like we'll be celebrating 31 years 
Oh, wonderful. And I was like, marriage is more of a business proposition wow. and the relationship. And you focus so much on the marriage that you don't nurture the relationship. And I'm like, mm-hmm. we need to look at this thing. Like, oh, we have our marriage, which is the business and taking care of the household and family, a unit, right? A little LLC partnership. And so, yeah, that's what, I don't know. I just, I said to him, and that was even when he proposed, Stacy, I'll tell you how funny this was. I said, yes, I'll marry you as long as you don't make me your wife. Those were, that was my answer. That's what you said? Like, wow. I, said, I will marry you as long as you don't make me your wife. And then I same day we got married, he signed the license. And I was looking at him. And I lie to you not, this whole kind of different look came across his face. I lost my man. I lost my man. (laughs) I'm now his wife. (laughs) But yeah, so that's something I'm always exploring in my writing and journaling because I'm fascinated by by that dichotomy. That woman has to come back and, and, you know, fulfill that someday list. I can't wait to read this. Y'all are killing me with these TBRs. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I do... uh, Sending out Karuna to you, compassion, mercy, um, and sending it for your family too. But that's a hard pill to swallow. Thank you. And in, in the midst of a wedding. So you're a journalist. Originally. Yes, I say former journalist. I haven't been a newspaper journalist for a while, but yes, I guess once a journalist, always a journalist. How how is that for you? Like being a black journalist. Wow. Because I don't know, because I just think that's like I don't see a lot of them. You know, I hadn't thought about it like that because I think I, I guess you're right. When I was in college, I went to Jackson State University and I would always do these journalism fellowships. They were sponsored by these organizations in uh, the Washington, D.C. area, the Freedom Forum. And then there was another one like the Night Journalism um, Program. And what mm-hmm. they would do was bring up, they would bring black journalist majors from HBCUs together and we would gather and they were building a community for us. And so they were doing it because there were not a lot of black journalists. Mm-hmm. They would have older black journalists in the field come and mentor us, tell us what it was like to be one of few in a newsroom. Here's how to carry yourself professionally. Here's how to keep your confidence up. So I feel like I had that training to prepare me as a college student. And then there were newsrooms that I went into and I was the only one. Um, and I remember my first job here at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. And so with the Times-Dispatch, I covered courts and crimes. So like, you know, mur- murder trials and all these big splashy crimes that would make the front page of the newspaper. Right. My job was to go in and write about those things. But I was like 22 when I started that job. And the first few months when I would walk into the courtroom, the bailiffs would assume that I you was with a, the- a family member of the, the defendant. Defense. And they'd say, the defendant's family sits on this side. And I'd be like, I'm not here for that. So they finally got used to seeing me and they figured out, oh, okay. So for me, um, and even now, I, I now I, I, I don't, I'm not a journalist. I work in strategic communications, but I work in fields and in, in spaces and at levels where I'm still one of few people mm-hmm. of color. And I will sometimes forget that I'm the only person of color in the room on the Zoom call. And I'll look around and I'm the decision maker or I'm the one giving the advice or whatever. And as a right. reporter, I'd be in there. You tell me your story. Help me understand your heart so I can reflect your heart back to the readers. Mm-hmm. Like that was always, always my job. I think because I'm so passionate about the writing and I'm so passionate about storytelling and yeah. making connections and helping people 
you know, not look beyond the color because, you know, our ethnicity and our race matters, but seeing the real person mm-hmm. beyond that, like that's a yep. part of who you are, but you're still a whole full human being who matters. So I think I've been so passionate about that. And that's, that's like driven me. I never forget my race and culture and I'm happy to speak up for it. Mm-hmm. I've always been driven by the story. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's humanity matters. And let's get to that. That's how I led as a journalist. And I think that really, that built trust. Like even if I were writing stories where people knew it wasn't going to make them look good, mm-hmm. they still trusted me to tell that story. They right. would still take my calls because they were like, I know when I pick up the paper tomorrow, I'm not going to like to see that headline, but I'm going to know you were fair and you got it right. That's awesome. I am not a news person like that. I don't. I used to like love the newspaper, but now right. obviously the newspaper is like a handout. It's a pamphlet. Like. <laughs> it's so sad. It is so sad to me. That's why I'm like, I'm, I'm a foreign, I proudly say former journalist right, because right. I truly consider myself a civic journalist. And mm-hmm. now I'm like, what's going on? What's going on with the news? <laughs> I've always thought like, if we could read the paper, like the state paper, which was a night company here in Columbia mm-hmm. and yeah. they um and you just know like you knew you were going to get some kind of skewed perspective from some of their reporters on the stuff that mattered to, mm-hmm. to like our community and I always like why would you do that like, you know why would you not just give everyone the benefit of the doubt and just tell the story my very first yeah. time. I was I'm like, wow. <laughs> but, well, you still look 12. I don't, oh, look, well, don't let you look like that. <laughs> yeah, because, yes, yeah, right. I always say black does crack. And as long as you're good to black, it'll be good till you write back. Hello. <laughs> you're obviously living right. I would love to get something like that because we don't get good news anymore. We don't get that inspiration, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, you know. Yeah, that's actually like when I, on my social media, you probably know I post inspirational posts yeah. several times a week. And when I left the newspaper, back, I left it full time in 2006. They ended up hiring me back as a the parenting columnist freelance for like 10 years after that. But when I left that column, uh, it was like the number one reason people were buying the Saturday paper. They had done like a focus group and it was a weekly column. And I loved that column. But before me was an opportunity, a three book deal. And I had young children. I was married at the time. I had to make a choice. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I love this column. But a three book deal. And that had been like my childhood dream to write books. And I'm like, right. I got to for this future. But I loved writing that column because mm-hmm. it had some faith-based elements to it, but I was very intentional about not being preachy. I'm Jewish. I read this every Saturday. This is my Sunday church, even though it comes <laughs> I knew I was reaching a crosswalk. And so I, that's why it's like, okay, I, I can't stop doing this. And that's why y'all have to deal with me on social media doing it now. No, so but I, I'm going to tell you, you have such a perfect balance. Oh, thank you. Because uh, I grew up Christian, but I'm no longer a Christian. I'm spiritualist. And so I have this, you know, everybody's on their own walk. Right. And so you have some folks who's like, oh, I'm an inspirational writer. But they're like literally cramming their yes. their beliefs and their, their faith system. I'm like, I can't deal with that. But you have such a beautiful, like, balance and subtlety to what you're doing. Everybody can say, oh. I needed to hear that. I needed to, I needed to like read that or see that. So yeah, you're just, that's why I wanted to ask you about like your journalism career. It's driven by that. And I, and, and I write my novels the same way for that. That's what I was going to say. You have yeah. such finesse 
and with your right okay we're not gonna fangirl yet but it's coming uh, it's coming yeah, that's because um I, my very first novel i was a newspaper reporter and i had been writing this column and um and my first publisher happened to be a faith-based publisher but i happened to be their their first they had published like a lot of non-fiction african-americans like td jakes and ben carson and other folks i was their first fiction black fiction writer they didn't know what to do with me and so and then like three months before that very first book speak to my heart came out the publicist left or something and i'm like emailing like where's emily or whoever she's done all this interview with me i haven't heard from her the book's coming out in like 90 days they're like oh she's no longer here and i was like ah so i was like okay i want to learn how to market a book so i just went into like okay y'all need to get this book on essence i was like no no let me explain like black christians to you <laughs> we are in church on sunday and then we're listening to Tom Jordan on Monday. And then we're reading Essence. And then we're also going to look at Christianity Today. But then we're also going to be at the comedy club. Like, they just could not wrap their brains around yes. it. I do strategic mm -hmm. communications now. So that career was born out of doing my author marketing. But with the writing of the books and with, it, with my publisher, I would always say, yes, we've got faith-based elements. That's my mission as a writer. I do have writer friends who overtly share faith and I support them and champion mm -hmm. them. And I have friends who are, oh, you know, overtly secular and I champion them and I'm supposed to be in the middle somewhere with both. Uh -huh. and I'm okay with that. And I think, um, you know, that's something I've appreciated about my author journey. But what they also taught you was when you have a book from their faith-based perspective, because that's where they were coming from, right. they were like, it's like your salt. It's like you're the light. That's your salt. So like, you know, if you're honoring who you're supposed to be, you're supposed to cast your light upon the world. You're supposed to spread, you know, your sprinkle your salt. And if you're not if you're not doing that, then you're not being obedient for the reason that you created it. Hmm. And so that really helped me a lot because then it wasn't about I wrote a book. You need to come buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. And I don't do a lot of that now, but because also what I've learned over time now that I've become a marketer is that people want to build a relationship with you. And when yeah. they know who you are as a person, then they're more interested in what you have to say, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. So even with that in mind, like even uh, yesterday, I was in the nail salon, get my nails done, and this lady sits next to me. And I can, listen, I can find stories anywhere. So she strikes up a conversation with me because she was getting like long green nails. And I got my little boring uh, French <laughs> manicure because I have a presentation in my corporate job. So I was like, okay, I got to like tone it down for that. So we were laughing about that. And she said, what do you do? And I said, well, I work in corporate communications. And what do you do? She's like, I'm a truck driver. I'm a cross-country truck driver. Let me tell you, Ella, I will have a cross-country truck driver. If not in the novel I'm writing now, it will be in a future one. It turned into this whole thing. But at the end of it, she said, well, and I said, well, I also write books, too. So we right. laughed about that. But then she said, well, tell me more about your books. And of course, I pulled out a card mm -hmm. and I gave her my business card, which has my book covers on it. You can talk about the book without selling. You know, you don't have to oversell the book. Right. It just naturally comes up in certain settings. Right. Because that's how it is. I guess you just have to be open and, yeah. and willing to, to be around people. Um, now I'm looking. I'm like, yeah, let me know when this when this green nailed woman hangs out in one of your books. <laughs> One of the, the perennial reader favorite book, Watercolored Pearls, which, of course, was also your most cathartic book. I love the title. Thank you. I absolutely love the title. And I confess this to every writer. I never read blurb. Never. Like, I never know what I'm going to be jumping into um, if the book cover is nice. And so, I, you know, I kind of approach reading like I approach my writing. I'm a discovery girl. I love to just fall yeah. into it and let the world open up for me. Um, why was this so cathartic for you? 
This is one of those books that almost wrote itself. Uh, it actually is the third book in the series. The first was Speak to My Heart. The second was Nothing But the Right Thing. And then Watercolor Prose, which was not the working title. Um, I don't recall even what the working title was, but it was meant to be this third book about these women that we'd seen grow up. They were already young adults. But like in this third book, uh, Serena, the main character in book two, she'd been dealing with infertility. So now at the beginning of book three, it opens up and she's got these two-year-old toddlers driving her crazy, but she wanted kids. And right. then her best friend, Erica, who in the first book is an atheist, second book finds her faith, find, finds herself living in a domestic violence shelter. Mm. Third book, now she's left this abusive man. She's becoming more independent. And here he is lurking, wanting to be her comeback guy. Can I get you back? And there's a good, good guy who's there like, hey, I'm your future. And she's yeah. struggling. Should I go toward the future or should I take back Elliot? And then you've got Tawana, who in the first book is a 16-year-old teenager who gets pregnant. Yeah. In the second book, she's gone off to college. And now here she is a law school student suffering with severe self-esteem issues mm -hmm. that's causing her self-sabotage. So writing these characters. Um, so for years, like I said, I started out covering courts and crimes. Well, the last 10 years before I left my journalism career, I covered social issues. I'm always wanting to figure out how people tick. As a reporter, I covered everything from welfare reform, which took me into some of the most interesting neighborhoods, smallest mm -hmm. homes in Richmond. I went into a domestic violence shelter for a three-month period and just sat with the women who came through wow. and ended up writing a three-day series as they worked their way to you know, independence. That's kind of how I was able to write about it in this novel. Um, I just wrote about so many different issues that you would consider social issues with women, children, and families. I was able to weave this into my fiction. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of why that's so real, because I had done all this real life sort of research, per se, even though I made sure everybody was fictional in the books. I have to do research. Like the, mm -hmm. the novel I'm writing now, it's set in a city and a state that I have not visited. I have spent, I was actually on the computer yesterday reading a Washington Post article about this particular city because I want to ground myself right. in the city to make it real for the character. With these stories, I think because I had covered these issues so intimately in other ways, I was able to like let the, the, the and the characters were like, I knew the characters from the two prior books. So this book, I had a very tight deadline because, you know, I was busy being a mom, working full time. I would go to my um, older friends. I literally don't know how Watercolored Pearls came to me. <laughs> I had just written the scene where mm -hmm. Charlotte, this older woman, tells them, I see y'all. I see where y'all are. Y'all are all struggling. And boy, y'all yeah. don't know what the last 30 years, how messy they were before right. I became Pearl getting this big award. So she was encouraging them that where they are is where they're meant to be. So when mm -hmm. I was writing that scene and they were watching Set It Off and getting all teary eyed. Oh, not Set It Off. I was getting teary eyed, right? And I'm like, ruined me. I was like, these characters are not real. Why am I getting so emotional? So I had just gotten myself so into the scene of the book and these women's feelings. And I don't know, sometimes when I'm writing, I do think about the person who's going to read the book that's going to need the book at that time. Mm -hmm. I, maybe I was thinking about that. So it's, it's very close to my heart because that's the first book of my own that made me cry while yeah. I was writing. And I'm like, why am I crying? These are not <laughs> real people. But I loved how Charlotte loved on them and they loved on each other and they, they, they were so imperfect, but they still stood together. Mm -hmm. And even like the younger sister who came along on a trip, she wasn't one of the main characters, but you could see them helping this teenager become the yeah. woman she needed to be. And I, and I do that yeah. in all of my books. I always have an older woman mentoring a younger woman because I don't think we do enough of that in society from a non-judgmental place. But um, yeah, so that's why it's my favorite because it made me cry. 
because I think it's it's like a, a an ode. It's it's a, a a gift to women that we do not have to be perfect. Society right. says we have purpose. Life is messy. It's okay. As long as we are doing our best each day. And mm-hmm. then, and, and as long as we see each other. So like seeing each other is so important. And I think I did that well in that book. And I mean, like that book came out, I want to say like 2004, 2005, maybe 2005. It just stood the test of time. So like, I still get invited to events around Watercolor Pearls. People still send me emails about this book, even though some of the, the information is dated. The story itself is timeless. And I honestly didn't realize, because I told you I don't read the blurb and stuff. I didn't realize <laughs> it came out in 2005. And you did such a wonderful job. I knew that it was the third book in a series, but I didn't need to read books one and two to become completely devoted to book three. Thank you. And I did that on purpose Who because without, because I was the first, um, you know, African-American fiction author for this publisher, Baker mm-hmm. Publishing Group. They were taking a book at a time. So I had the first book deal. Let's see how it goes. Well, that went well. OK, let's do book two. Well, that went well. Well, let's go ahead and do book three. And so after Watercolor Pearls, they're like, OK, now we'll give you a three book deal. So I purposely wrote those books as standalones. We're already into intentional writing. And I, I always try and explain that intentions has this medical definition. Did you know that? No, a medical definition? Hmm. I know. I was like, when I found it maybe three or four years ago, medical definition of intentions is Hmm. the healing process of a wound. The healing process of a wound. Wow. Because I'm like, people, I don't know that people are very, I don't know that people pay attention to the words that they use and how they're using them. But I was like, oh, I love that. Wow. And when I was a, a, a columnist, my second column, a parenting columns, I always talked about intentional parenting. Because yes. you can be a wonderful parent, you can be a parent, but when you're in, and I intentionally parented my kids when we have conversations about mm-hmm. it. Oh, that's why I did that. That's why I said no to that. Because in my mind, I'm thinking like two, three, five years down the road, that kind right. of thing. Right. And so think about how much healing you wow. have. And wow. I find that Black women, specifically, there's always this kind of balm. There's always this mm-hmm. healing that comes through our writing, through our words. It doesn't matter what genre or how the, the work is presented. Anything I read that's written by a Black woman, I know I can sit back and there's going to be a little, hey, girl, mm-hmm. let me get at this part in here that you didn't even realize was bruised, right? And I don't know that we recognize how healing it is for us. Hmm. Like you said, and... Thank you for, for sharing that. Like you have 10 years of like, I'm going to court. I'm dealing with all these things. And now I'm going to the social services and I'm just de- like, that's vicarious trauma. And it's mm. like, what do you do with that? Mm. For me? Wow. I hadn't thought of it. For me, I guess I never thought, I didn't see it as trauma. I think for me, it was healing to tell the stories. So like when I would go to court and I'd have to write the story about uh, Tony, he and a friend went to a car dealership and this car salesman, Leland, took him on a test drive and they decided to steal the car. So they killed Leland. And of course, they eventually got caught. And here they are in court. And I'm writing the story about how this innocent car salesman was just doing his job on a Saturday. And this 20 year old, this 18 year old go do this heinous crime. And of course, they get convicted. Mm-hmm. I write that story. But what fascinates me most is now I got to hear the story about Tony, the 18-year-old, 
who never had a friend until he met up with this 20 year old, never had a single friend raised by his grandparents. And then the one friend he gets helps him lose his life. Like that's the story that I told after I told about the conviction. So to me, it's healing to say, let me tell you how this 18 year old kid who was a quiet kid raised by his grandparents never did anything wrong, but he also never had a friend. Right. So the one person who befriends him did it for the wrong reason and look where this led. So it tells you a little bit about who Tony is, but it also tells you about the grandparents' heartbreak and about who we are as a society. Like mm -hmm. if I read that and my kids went to Tony's school, I need to tell my kids, you need to be more empathetic. You need to pay mm -hmm. attention to the kid that's sitting on the playground by himself. So for me, the healing part actually was telling the stories and telling you more than what you thought you knew. Yes, he was a criminal. He murdered this man or helped murder this man. But here's the other side of the story. Welfare reform. He need to work their way off of welfare. These people mm -hmm. have three years in Virginia. Well, let me tell you about the woman who weighs 480 pounds and she wants to work. So social services pays for her to get a gastric bypass. And now she owns her own cleaning business. Or let me tell you about Shamika. Now, when mm -hmm. I'm writing this story, I didn't have my own kids. She was 25 with four kids. I didn't have any children. I'm like, wow, I couldn't deal with one. But she's working for a dentist's office, a dental hygienist, and he believes in her. But he can't give her a raise because then her child, her child daycare costs are going to go up. So she's yeah. got to stay under a certain salary to keep the daycare for four kids. Because he, so he can't give her a raise, but if he can't give her a raise, she's never going to get off of welfare. So right. I'm telling you like policy stuff, but I'm humanizing it through the stories of the people. So that was healing for me. And I can see how that's healing. I I, um, I talk about teaching because I taught for almost 14 years. Hmm. And I had, like when I was in there doing my thing and working with like those students that nobody else wanted to talk to or see coming ever in life because that those were my babies. And I remember when I had to come home and I was like decompressing because, you know, I'd gotten sick and all this other stuff. But then like once I got my life together, I was like, wait a minute, because there's just this heaviness. Mm. Just from like everything that, that we had gone through together, like my students, mm. 14 years, I can't even count the number of students that came through my classes. And all of them were like, I just need to talk to you for a minute because that's nobody would ever listen. But we do internalize that mm -hmm. stuff, and then mm -hmm. we are able to. I, I know writing those four books in this series because, and it was all very dark mm. for me because that's what they gave me, and mm. I was like, I had to get rid of all this, all yeah. this stuff because yeah. it'll sit there. So I, I find that, yeah, sometimes we don't recognize that we need to get it out or where it comes from. And I'll go back and I'm reading stuff and I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember. I remember this game. Miss Serena McDaniel. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Serena McDaniel. Um, and you did such a great job summing her up. But you know, she was kind of um, aggravating. Why? Because she was kind of in her head a lot or why was she aggravating? Because she would not ask for help. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was misindependent. She was out there giving it to everybody. Mm -hmm. Not it, but help. Help. Okay. Because okay. look, we yeah. have to clip stuff up. She was out there. <laughs> My bad. She was out there, like, you know, being everything to everyone. And I'm like, I think the book opened with her in the grocery store and one of her little, her little kids like yeah. running off and even when they you know there were people trying to help her 
like, girl, what's going on? What is going on? And I just wanted to shake her. And I then I said, black women have that superwoman syndrome. She was wearing the cape. She was wearing and that And then cape. I said, that's what I said. I said, you know what? This is intentional. This is intentional. And so for, because, you know, I remember that dagnap cape. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you the truth. I was proud of it, right? Every time I put another little patch on it or it got a little bit mm -hmm. longer, a little bit heavier, and I was still floating. I got my mind back. What are you doing? What are you doing? But you did, again, this is a testament to you as a writer. Because I was emotionally invested from the beginning. Well, thank you. And I was just like, again, because I'm looking at it from, you know, the, the kind of, I'm over that, I need to be a superwoman situation. And so me, I'm just like, girl, I just want to go get her. And sit her down <laughs> and be like the ring lifting her baby. That's what Charlotte did eventually, right? right? Exactly. And then that's what I do when I see these young people out here losing their mind early in their marriage. And let's talk. Not that serious. <laughs> just calm down. Okay. Just calm down. But you did so yes. great with her and Micah. Yes. I won't lie. I had a little crush. <laughs> I had a little crush on Micah. I love the so name, funny. but I love. I love that he was a minister, but he wasn't this. Yes. And that's why I was saying, you balance that thing out. Yes. And I was yes. just like, oh my God, because he's kind of goofy too. And I love a good goofy dude. <laughs> so he balanced her out. So he was kind of like chill and she's like high strung and all over the place. <laughs> um, and I was like, when is she going to like calm down? And I could just tell, like, I just felt like this every time I read her. Mm. Like, and nobody, you know, they're not going to see this, but I'm cringing right now. And I'm all like balled up, right? Because I just felt so tense with her. But she was also so sweet and mm. nurturing. And I was just like, gosh, give hugs so she can like relax. Aww, aww. And so why was it important to you to write her character like that? Wow. Um, well, because I think probably her trajectory. So like, you know, you you didn't you don't know the backstory because you didn't read the first two books. But in the very first book, she finds out that the person she thought was her father was not. Her mother had lied to her all these years and it was this deacon in the church. So she was estranged from her mother yes. the first five years. And so then her mother ends up dying. I'm giving a book away I'm, and I'll probably put it back out. But anyway, because um, I had the rights to that one. I'm like, I'm going to reprint these books one day. But um, so anyway, she spends all this time kind of being, like you said, just kind of tight and like angry and, you know, self-righteous. But the whole the whole the first book is called Speak to My Heart, because the whole time she was running from God, he still kept speaking to her. And of mm. course, then she ends up meeting Micah and falling for Micah, who happens to be a minister, that whole thing. Um, so I think there's so many women and black women. You know, Malcolm X said, <laughs> we're not we are. it. We are, we are supposed to be so strong and we're supposed to just have it all together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially after her mom dies in that second book, you kind of see her grieving a little bit. And then she ends up helping Erica with Erica's young child while she's struggling with infertility. So you see her vulnerability mm -hmm. in that second book. In the third book, it's almost like, well, God, answer my prayers. I got these twins now. Now I got to get it right. I got to be perfect. And she's given up her career. So some mm -hmm. of it is her identity shift. She doesn't feel like she's doing all her best at this mom thing, but she's given up this high power career as an advertising exec where her identity was. So she's in this crossroads of I'm kind of like a wife 
And then my mom, and I'm not even doing it to the best of my ability. So that's kind of, I wrote her like that intentionally because I think so many I, women struggle with that. Exactly. That's what that's what we were talking about earlier. Like she's yeah. like, okay, I'm a wife and mom. Shoot, but I gave up my womanhood. Yeah. And I'm sucking at this mom thing. Yeah. Or at least she thought, and it was so cool because I remember reading it and, and it sounds like, don't complain about these kids because you asked for them. Yes, yes. And the second book, she did ask. She pleaded for the children. Yes, I like, could tell. So she, I mean, she felt like, oh, no, I don't have a right to complain. Mm -hmm. I don't have a right to do this set and third because I asked for this. I begged for this. And mm -hmm. I'm like, that guilt. And I don't know, again, is there a commentary there about guilt? I think just womanhood. And I'm this person, but just me as a person, it could be the cashier at the Dollar Tree. Before I leave the line, she told me her whole story. So um, I think partly I wrote Serena that way because she was trying to deal with it silently. She was trying to be this perfect first lady. She didn't want people to know she was truly struggling. And I just think about all the women, the people who took the time to tell me stuff randomly. Think about mm -hmm. all the people who don't tell us their stuff. Exactly. And and But everybody's got a story and everybody's dealing with something and everybody's struggling. So I never really wanted to write a perfect character. I wanted the characters that on the surface, they should be perfect. They appear perfect. They got it yeah. together. No, they don't. They're struggling too. And I wanted to normalize that. I love how their house almost is like, a an inanimate version of of them right <laughs> and i was just like i love that i don't know if other people picked up on it but i was like they have this big beautiful home and it's like you're looking at it and you're like oh yeah that's cool but then it's like oh wait we have a lot of work to do in this home yeah. and so the juxtaposition of the house and then like you know serena and micah and these two boys who are like running amok because they're little boys right <laughs> And so, I mean, again, I don't, the symbolism was beautiful. And I think, you know, just paying attention to all of it. Big house, big heart, right? Yes. House needs a lot of work. Girl, you need to go get yourself some work. Too. <laughs> <laughs> you need to go put in the work so you can reclaim all of it, right? And then Mike is just kind of walking around like, oh. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, Serena was awesome. But again, because I'm on the other side of that hill, right? Yeah. Girl, get it together. <laughs> Wait till you read my novel, Finding Home. You will want to shake Jessica with oh, everything in you. I didn't even like Jessica when I was writing her for a similar reason. I was like, I don't even like this character. I've never written a, written a character that I don't like. But by the end of the book, she has some growth. <laughs> okay, I'm going Erica. Your Fine. face, which the listeners can't see. <laughs> oh, uh, that's another reason I'm not doing video because it's horrible. I have no, <laughs> no filter. Yeah, and so I, I'm like reading Erica, and and you did such a great job again. Like I don't need the backstory because I know the the man was right there. Hard. I was like, oh, this dude's a narcissist. I, I, we didn't even use the term back then as much. Narcissist. We didn't even he have is. a whole term. And that's why I'm saying your book is timeless. I saw absolutely. I didn't realize it was written. I'm just now, today, years old, realizing that Elliot is a narcissist. I'm like, I just found out he's a narcissist. <laughs> and you wrote him perfectly. We know, I'll tell you, the backstory there is I had these, beta, we call them beta readers now. We got all these new fancy terms. They were just my, my readers, my first readers. <laughs> and I had three people that would read. And one of them was um, 
a former journalist friend, because I knew she was on to always be honest with me. Another was a, a current journalism friend who just was like, you know, OK, I, I'm just going to tell you if it's boring or not. And then I had a friend who loved to read books. Well, mm-hmm. she happened to be a former therapist. So she wanted uh-huh. all my characters in therapy. I'm like, everybody can't go to therapy. They but all need it. I make sure that Elliot goes to anger management. But I wanted to tell you why he went to anger management. He saw his dad do it to his mom. That whole cliche. He kind of got a little bit of his humanity there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was. I forgot where I was going with this. I definitely had the reader who was a therapist. And yes. even when I wouldn't put everybody in therapy, she taught me that everybody's got a psychological, emotional journey. And I wanted to make sure that I included that. Well, you did, friend. Thanks. You did. You did. And you you took, well, I don't, again, I can't speak for all your readers, but you took me on the journey right along with them. And I'm like, I know people. I know men like this. I know men who have abused women. And right. then they gaslight. And I was like, ooh, if you take it, and you're considering what you're saying, I was fussing the whole and see, the layer for her was the faith piece. Exactly. Because see, she had now found her faith. She was an atheist in the first book. Now she's found faith. So sometimes when you're new in that faith, yep. do it by the letter. Dot those I's, cross those T's. Yep. And that was intentional because I, I, need, I wanted people to understand God's unconditional love. And mm-hmm. unconditional love does not require you to dot the I's and cross the T's because it knows that we, he knows that we are valuable humans. We are not perfect. So we can't always do that. And now we humans require that of each other. We Mm -hmm. judge each other for that. But an unconditionally loving God does not. And so that's kind of where I was trying to get her from. I got to be this because, you know, in her own way, Serena was trying to be perfect around motherhood. So Mm -hmm. Erica was trying to be perfect in this faith and she needed to understand. Nope. You know, life, you're going to be human. You're going to make mistakes. That's what grace is for. Yeah. Yeah, she. I was just looking at her the whole time, and I said to when she started going back and forth, and I think it was like her boss, right, who was with mm-hmm. the interior. I was like, "Girl, because <laughs> he sounds real fine." I'm not gonna lie, but then he kept saying, "But God doesn't want us to break up the family. God doesn't want us to to be divorced. There has to be." And I was just like thinking about like women and my family who stayed. Because they they thought, well, I don't want this to appear, right? I don't want to I don't want to go to church and they're not having with me and I have my kids and and I was just like thinking, Eric, girl, listen, he is mm-hmm. not gonna change. Mm-hmm. I hate to stop right here, but we gotta pay the bills. We'll be back after this message. In a world where shadows dance and secrets lurk comes an unforgettable saga of broken souls, written by Alishine. Get ready to embark on a gripping journey through time, a dark southern coming-of-age saga that spans over 30 years. Nothing is as it seems. With every turn of the page, secrets unravel, revealing a web of intrigue that will leave you breathless. Breaking is the easy part. Having the courage to look into the mirror of your souls, allowing yourself to be consecrated, to rise harmoniously in alignment with self and the universe, that's the hard part. Join John and Vivian 
on this unforgettable journey where shattered souls rise, courage is tested, and destinies are forged. The Broken Souls series by Ella Shawn, a gripping four-book masterpiece that will keep you captivated till the very end. Don't miss your chance to experience this compelling tale of love, loss, and redemption. Purchase your copy now and be prepared to have your soul shattered. Because sometimes the darkest paths lead to the brightest light. He is not going to change. So, yes, when I tell you, you write a book that forces your reader into every situation, I'm there. I'm like, girl, you're not going to change. My very first book, my, my own mother was reading it. And mm -hmm. I called, she was in Arkansas, she's deceased now. And she was like, yeah, you need to tell Erica to leave that Elliot alone. I was like, well, Erica is not a real. If, and see, and I talk about them. I was really done. I'm serious. I was done. And when he was like, well, I, I found someone. I'm signing the papers. I'm getting married. Really? <laughs> what? I was over him. So Erica, with Erica's character, you said you wanted us to see her growth and you wanted her to find her um I don't know. I'm going to say happy medium in the faith. So, and just mm -hmm. accept perfection does not exist within the human, right? So, right. stop striving for that. Right. Did you have to take her through all of it? Yeah, I did. Because, you know, you had to add a little drama to the story. But also, in taking her through it, think about the women. It was really for women who make both choices. You make the choice to stay with the abusive person, you make the choice. I'm going to keep this family intact no matter what. But then the grace was she saw that woman running down the driveway and she said that woman had enough confidence and courage to lead, to lead the first time. That taught her something, too. So I wanted that juxtaposition. I know that it takes an average of seven times a person will go and come back. So I was trying to show without giving everybody the statistic. But, you know, somebody who's dealing with a, an abusive partner, they will leave and go back on average yep. seven times. Yeah, very rarely do they leave the first time and stay gone. And that's the, that's the reality that women deal with. And that's the frustrating part. So like family members who know somebody going through that, you know, they probably like, oh, why didn't my person leave? Because they do go back. I, when I was in the shelter, they would let me come in and I would literally sit like for maybe two to five. Um, what? Tawana. Why do you have to say it with such attitude? Bless her little heart. <laughs> she was 20 something. I knew her. I caught her. Oh, wow. I had several Tawanas. Mm. One of which was 14. Wow. And a freshman. Mm -hmm. And you said you met this woman who was 25 with four kids. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I wrote a column about a young lady who was 20 years old. She'd had a child at 10, 10 years old. And Wait, had what? Gone... Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yes, I wonder where she is today. I, I wonder where she is. She was 20 when I met her, and I was writing a column about her because she was um, a pre-biology, pre-med major at a local university. And just about, and it was really the beautiful story of a woman who had never married, got her home, promised God when she got her house, she was going to 
use it to bless others. So she decided to become a foster mother. The first foster child they gave her was this 10-year-old girl. When the 10-year-old girl gets there, they find out the 10-year-old girl is pregnant. So she commits to helping the 10-year-old raise her daughter. And she did so well that the 10-year-old grew into a young lady who could go on to college and now be a pre-med major. And she was still helping. So yes, I've met those young mothers. And that's a beautiful story right there. That's a real life story of an older woman nurturing a younger woman. I don't even know what to say to that. I know, right? I saw many stories. That's why I'm like, the stories are healing for me to like tell stories like that. But then I see that with Tawana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? I because I, like yeah. You did. Because I'm like, but I think even with that, you may not count that as trauma. You may not count that as, man, I'm not happy. That's a lot to carry. But it comes out, right? Because that's a lot, a lot to I would, I would be destroyed. I was destroyed with this child four years through high school. And mm. she's like, you know, I don't know how she is now, but I know she's six kids. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. New Tawana. And I knew this low self-esteem trading her body for just a little bit of affection, a little bit of Maybe I care about you, like just starved, emotionally starved, all the things. And you just did it, man, you did her so well. Oh, thank you. And I, it was like, I didn't have like the, Tawana, I just don't shake you. No, it's just like, because I felt I like I felt towards my kids, my kids that I taught. I just want to, I just want you to be healthy. I just want you to be happy, Tawana, see your worth. I mean, you're in law school here at Harvard. This is me talking to her, by the way. <laughs> well, I told you, the book had me crying. They became real to me, too. <laughs> yeah, this is me after that dude. She was like, you still wanna? How much you willing to? <laughs> so that was me talking to her. And so I told you there would be a fangirl moment because, you, you <laughs> man, you did your thing, right? Like, you did Thank your you thing. So but, and all of it, none of it's preachy. None of it, I didn't feel, and not that I, I mean, I'm fine, right? If you had right. gospel singing and a whole sermon written in there, <laughs> your girl would have been up, okay? Because I'm not like that, but I'm like, right. how do you balance it? And you make it so accessible, everyone, without making anyone, I don't know if anyone would read this book and feel uncomfortable. Wonderful. That is my goal because it's supposed to be accepting for all, even though I have the faith elements in it. I don't know. And that really felt like ministry to me. Like if you, I'm not a minister, but that was like my ministry. And it was my way of like, really, like when after 9-11 happened, they were blaming the Muslims. So <laughs> I turned the TVs on in the newsroom. I see the second plane hit the tower. I literally, I promise you, I'm not making this up. My first assignment back I had because I wrote this column was to go visit a Muslim faith center. I was going to write this piece about this guy. So that's right. very intentional to have the person struggling and then to have the, the person that's kind of reflecting the voice of God. Okay, it's my last little question about your book because we're <laughs> going to move on. Micah's best friend, Ian Kearney. Yes. Ian, yes. His wife. Oh, yeah, we know. Uh, I'm trying to, I get the wife and the, was it Bethany? I get the wife and the daughter mixed up. Was Victoria the Look, daughter? I, Tori is the daughter. Yes. I think, I, yes, Tori's the daughter. And I think it was Beth, Bethany? Yes. Come on now. We all know some Bethany's. Now, I, now I did take it to the extreme. 
with what happened. Extreme, I have you, no, you fell off the extreme cliff. I, I'm not playing. I knew people like that in church growing up. I'm not. I knew people like that in church mm-hmm. growing uh, and bold. I mean, just crazy bold with their crazy. I was done with Bethany from the moment he knocked on that door talking <laughs> over her. This poor girl up here struggling. She got these two babies, still trying to get her baby, pre-baby body back, trying to decide who she is. But And you come in looking like, don't do that, Bethany. But Bethany had a whole set of issues of her own. Exactly. And then the fact that you just kind of, you. sometimes I throw my candle. <laughs> okay? I'm an emotional reader. And sometimes I throw my candle. And it was like, you, you gave us all of Bethany's kind of, you know, Bethany is this, Bethany's that. Vicariously living her dreams through her daughter. Can't stand women like that. I'm like, girl, get your own life. Let your kid be a kid. You do you. Yes. But you snuck that in so so sly. It was so subtle. Like, I didn't even realize she was like that mom, right? Mm-hmm. You, you did good. I'm telling you, man, you are such a finesse writer. Thank you so much. I need to hear that as I'm working on this manuscript. You know how it is when you're slogging through, girl. You are like crazy good with the whole, I'm going to give you enough to make you think you know what's up. Then I'm going to hit you in the head with the truth. Because <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. And then how everything was so connected. That's just for me, that happens when I'm writing. Some of it's planned, but a lot of it comes to me when I'm writing. Like, oh, this should happen. Oh. Like literally, I was in my writing cave this weekend working on my current novel. I had the first five or six, I was rereading the first five or six chapters. I promise you, a bomb dropped. And I'm like, ah, that's not what's supposed to happen on page one. Are you are you a plotter? Like you plan? I'm a very loose plotter because with my after I got that, after my fourth book, I started selling novels just on contract. So you have to like give them a very full fleshed out synopsis like this happens and then this happens and this is how it's going to end. My endings never match those endings in my contract. They got used to it, but they liked it better. So they didn't. They were OK, because what I'm thinking that I'm like, I think this is how this book is like. I think right. I know how the book that I'm writing now. I think I know how it's going to end. If I really won't know to the characters take me there. Mm-hmm. So I have a sense of like it could end like this. And then the publishers, they like where they think it's going to end. But typically it's better. I'm like, oh, it just got so much better because the characters decided what they wanted to do. Exactly. So I'm, both, I'm, I'm a plotter by necessity, but I'm a pantser once I kind of get in my groove. And I like that. Yeah. I actually like that because I do a lot of characters to surprise me. Yes. Yes. Well, call yourself a discovery writer. Oh, is that what it's called now? Discovery That's what writer? I call me. That's because I'm thinking pantser is such a negative connotation. Yeah. And it's not like I'm flying by the seat of my pants. I am right. allowing my characters to drive. I like that. Discovery, discovery writer. writer. I'm going to put yeah. that. Thank you. Yes. That's my last fangirl moment. Thank you so much. Thank you. For saying, yeah, this is the most cathartic book. I could see why it was cathartic. It was very cathartic for me. Um, oh just God. giving me a glimpse of myself early in my marriage mm. when I started having kids feeling like oh lord now what am I gonna do I, I'm, I'm working full-time I got a kid I got a husband I got a mortgage I got car notes I got daycare I was just like, all over the place and crazy oh yeah I was right there with you I was right there with you oh yeah <laughs> yeah yeah just like crazy and then yeah. I mean not the abusive part but that whole 
but a hey, should I go? And that's with anything, not just with the relationship. Just right, being right. so unsure and so like afraid to actually make a decision. Right. Me just deciding I'm going to leave this newspaper job to focus on books like that was a big decision. That was a big leap of faith. You know, I tell everybody that I, I was at that place seven years into my teaching and mm. I, I was I, I felt it. I heard it. You need to go. It's time to go. Yeah, yes. it's time yes. to go. And I was like, uh, wait a minute here, because I have children mortgage. I need this first and 15. I couldn't do it. I didn't do it. And from that year forward, my health started declining. Ooh, because you stayed where you weren't supposed to. I wasn't supposed to. I was like, you get those little, like, ooh, I'm going to just knock on your door and be like, hey, girl, time to go. And then, you know, eventually I got hit with the boulder. And it, you can go oh. and do what I said to do, or I mm. can just, you know, let you go and then, you know, figure something else out. And I was like, oh. wow. Okay. Thank you. Thank You're you. awesome. You're awesome. Thank you You're so much. So I'm honest. I don't know how sweet I am because I'm really not, but I'm really honest because I love honest friends. I do. I do. (laughs) I can't remember much because of all the crazy that's here. And so I tell people, you don't ever have to worry about me lying to you because I won't remember (laughs) a lot. We'll be all right. So one of the questions, uh, black writer or a writer, which one do you prefer? I I use them interchangeably, uh, but I would say a writer. Because um, what I found with my probably the first maybe by my, my time I got to my fourth book, I had because I was this journalist and this columnist, I have friends of all walks, all ilks. And I had a few white women friends say to me, I'd love to give this book to my friends. My first few books had covers with black women on it. And uh, they don't think they wouldn't think that it's for them. They because of the covers. And this was back in the early 2000s when we mm-hmm. weren't as, you know, I guess open right. as we are now. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So my, I think it would have been my seventh book. I asked my publishers, let's try a cover without people on it. Let's see what happens. Because I was curious. Um, Mm -hmm. Not that I felt like I needed to cater to that audience. Because I'm like, you don't know what you're missing. But it was it was an interesting experiment that she that she and they, because a couple of women told me that they were right. Because then I started to hear from women around the country, I'm Caucasian. I was seven or eight chapters in before I realized I was reading about a black woman because this was my story, which I thought was interesting because what they were resonating with was the story and she just happened to be black. So that didn't offend me because what I hope it was was a lesson for those readers. Right. You know what? Your neighbor is a beautiful mother, wife, whatever, who just happens to be black. Your coworker is an excellent, talented, whatever, who just happens to. So for me, yeah, I'm a writer. I'm a writer and I'm all, I'm a writer who's going to write black characters. Okay. So yeah, I think I'm a writer first, but I always bring my blackness with me. You you just lead me right down in, into our next segment, the audacity of black women writers. (laughs) Um, because you've already shared what you want to achieve with your writing, and I 100% believe you are doing that. So thank you so much. I mean, the- what about dealing with the publishing industry as a black woman would make you seek out my couch if I were truly a licensed therapist <laughs> offering these services? What did I say? <laughs> you said the white gaze and changing characters for a more universal appeal or broaden marketability. Oh, that's what I said. Okay. Huh. I think for me, 
with some of my publishers and probably just them appreciating that there is a readership for me in some instances. I think my first publisher really got it. My second publisher, I was also the first. Um, they have many now. They have many um, African-American writers. I would say, well, they're getting me. It's many being five or six, but <laughs> I was the first and they didn't know what to do with me and they were larger. So they, the first publisher, they were small enough. I was like, let me hold your hand. And then they hired right. me. The other one, they, they were bigger. They had this engine. So they thought they knew what they were doing. And I was kind of like a voice crying in the wilderness saying the same stuff I'd said to the first publisher. So that probably would, would probably be, be true because I, I felt like I can help us reach these artists. There are plenty of readers. Let me help you kind of get there. But what I probably was also talking about was, let me think about, how, what did I say again? I said the white gaze and what? And being asked to change like stuff in the book uh, for more yeah. universal appeal, broad and marketability. Yeah, so there's a scene uh, near the end of Watercolored Pearls where um, Serena and Micah are having a barbecue in their backyard. Mm -hmm. And um, somebody, one of the characters is like, man, you put your foot, you put your foot in this barbecue. Yes. And I remember getting those edits back and my editor's like, there's like a typo here. Like this <laughs> like doesn't like, can you, I think we need to like rewrite this. And I'm like, no, we don't need to rewrite that because that's what happens. Black people put their foot in food that's good. And yeah. then like they certain, they, their traditions around faith, the first lady is not as revered. In mm -hmm. some of their, you know, faith-based comments, they could not get this whole first lady concept and why she was so revered and why that was a big deal and why were we writing it to be such a big deal. Right. I'm like, so now I got to go into the whole sociological thing about in the African American community, the the most revered person was the black minister. Thereby, mm -hmm. his wife was an extension of that. So I had to do a lot of education. So it wasn't. In some ways, it could have been frustrating, but they listened. So that was helpful right. that I was able to say, no, we meant to put the foot in there or the big toe, whatever I wrote. We're keeping that. We're going to keep the first ladies written like this. We're going to keep. So I just had to do education around those subtleties. Right. So that's mm -hmm. kind of what I was referring to. Like some of my white readers likely wouldn't have gotten that. And that's OK. Um, but the editors didn't either. So like if they wanted to edit it out, I would have to explain why we were going to need to leave that in. Right, right. And is that like, do you find that even now, right? Because you've been 20 years, you said. Yeah, 20 years. And I have not written, uh, I've not had a novel published in like seven years. My last novel came out in 2015, 2016. So I haven't, I've been working, you know, other work, doing more nonfiction, getting back into the fiction now. I don't even remember what I was going to ask you. No, I do. So we're like 20 years in for you. And yes. and so you're going back into the publishing arena with a yes. fictional book. Just do you think that you're going to have that same issue? I have no idea. I don't think so. I mean, because I've been following my, I, don't, I should say I, I'm hopeful that I won't because I've been very closely following a lot of my author friends who have been publishing mm -hmm. over the past three or four years. You know, I have author friends who span the trajectory of the 20 years, but especially since George Floyd, Yes, the publishing industry opened up in a different way. So I see some of my writer friends who had not, who's, you know, they had been fallow like me. They're back out there. They're in a new way. They're, they, I know, know some of the publishing houses hired like people of color for vice president of marketing roles and senior editing roles. So my sense of it is, is that it, it is better. That's kind of what I'm okay. picking up. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I hope, I hope that is like the truth. But I have to add segment two what gave you? the audacity to believe I can go conquer the publishing industry, write my books, sell them to publishing companies and 
do what I need to do as a black woman? Because I was born a writer. It's all I've ever been. When I was five mm -hmm. years old, I learned when I learned how to read, I started writing and I would write short stories and poems. I'm the very youngest of five. And my eldest sister would take them back in the days of the typewriter, type it up <laughs> the back and say, here's your book. And then in third grade, I started working on my first novel, Kima Kurtzen. I remember the name of it. But when I turned 10, I, I sent it off to Harper and Rose Jr. Books. And I got a little blue rejection card saying, no, thank you. We don't want to publish. Now, mind you, 25 years later, HarperCollins became my second publisher. So dreams do come true. But back then as a kid, I grew up in this, you know, mid-sized town in Arkansas. And I had my family believing in me. And then my fourth grade teacher let me write the class play. Talk about teachers. My fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Jackson, before we had all the issues with the policemen. I wrote this poem about police officers, which I, it's very corny. I still remember it. Uh, I wrote this. You cannot say I wrote this poem. It's very corny. I still remember it. And then it was like an 11 year old girl's poem. So, you know, it's corny. It's not but corny. I, it's cute. It really is cute. So it showed me that writing has power. Writing has impact beyond. I don't want to be a starving artist. I'm not trying to like do it all. I'm not trying to suffer. <laughs> So that's how I that's how I discovered journalism, which is another form of storytelling. So long story short, I was born to be a writer. Mm -hmm. I was born to tell stories. I've always just been a writer. That's who I am. And so because that's who I am, you get to experience and enjoy my blackness. You get to experience and enjoy me as a petite, little bubbly, corny woman. You get to experience all that I am because I think all of us who are writers have something to share with the world. Mm -hmm. And so there's somebody, there's some people, readers who need to experience what I have to offer. Mm -hmm. so that's my answer. Good answer. Good Thank answer. You. I love that. And you're like, it's corny, but like, <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that because right now, especially right now, just to hear how like innocent you were and how the police were so like, because I remember that they were the heroes. Yeah. Like you yeah. could always say, oh, if I get in trouble, I know who to call. Right. I love that. Absolutely love that. Um, so I'm going to get some advice from you. And then we're going to uh, play the game. Okay. Uh, favorite part. Um. I honestly do respect you so much. I love what you put on your platform and all the times that we've spoken. You're just like, this is Stacy. This is Stacy. It's still Stacy. I absolutely <laughs> adore that. And so I would love for you to um, maybe give some aspiring writers some advice, some young Black girl who's just sitting there thinking, I'm born to write. Hmm. Now what? Wow. I think the world we live in now, like I'm like, if I had the internet, oh, honey, I'd be best friends with Michelle Obama and Maya Angelou would <laughs> have been my mentor. I would have found my way to Winston-Salem. <laughs> so I feel like young Black girls today have the world at their fingertips. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do some work with an author friend of mine. You know, sometimes I will assist him, like just, you know, on a little side hustle or whatever. He's a New York Times bestselling author. And he got an email two weeks ago from a young lady who's being raised by her grandparents because her parents are incarcerated. And the mm -hmm. letter moved him so much that he's going to show up at her door to give her some free books. 
So if you think about the power of your pen and just sending an email, if you want to be a writer, don't think of yourself as a black writer. You're a black young person. You're never going to lose your culture. Hold on to your culture. Write. They always say write what you know. When you write what you know, you write who you are. And who you are is someone who has words to grace the world. If you're meant to be a writer, you write from the, the vessel that you are. And there's something about who you are anyway that that special touch is going to come through your writing. Mm. So I would say do your research. You, there are many organizations across the country in various cities. Like we have a group here in Richmond where I live, Richmond Young Writers. They cater to helping children um, write. I have a friend who has a, a group in Charlotte. So find out locally what you can do for summer camps or it, it, maybe there's a, re, a weekend writing retreat for young writers. There are plenty of things online, organizations you can join online um, or groups you can join. So do that to hone your writing skill. Read, read, read. Read Black authors, but read very widely because our best Black authors have done that. Maya Angelou mm -hmm. has done that. Um, other great writers, they talk about reading very broadly. So then when you're ready to write about your experience as a Black person, it comes through the layers and the words and all these things you poured into yourself. And it helps you articulate yourself in a really powerful way. Um, and then just write courageously. So I am a novelist. I write fiction, but I'm always going to be, I love journalism too. I love nonfiction writing. So I do essay writing. I was a, a blogger. I wrote, um, I guess, blogs, blog posts for the Huffington Post for a few years back. Oh, wow. So, like if you go to, I think it's somewhere on my website, on one of my pages, probably my About Stacy page. And I wrote about, you know, having the fears of being a mother raising a teenage black boy mm -hmm. in Virginia. You know, I wrote about that. I wrote about um, sending my daughter off to college for the first time. So, you know, have the courage to write from a vulnerable space of like with who you really are. And then also if you're writing fiction, you can bring some of those same emotions into your fiction. So when I teach writing classes, there's one course I teach um, and it's designed to teach people both fiction and nonfiction. And I use the same techniques with them. If you're writing fiction, help me feel the character's journey, help me know who that person is, mm -hmm. help me care. If you're writing nonfiction, show me, bring some elements of storytelling and visual and mm -hmm. smell and taste that you would have in fiction. Give me that in your nonfiction. So yeah. either way, you're painting a picture, you're taking me on that journey. So that would be my advice, just to continue to hone those skills, read broadly, be yourself and write from who you are. Don't worry about trying to write like someone else. Thank you, Miss Stacy. That Thank is you. obviously. All righty, tell the whole story. Rules? Go no, on. I don't. <laughs> no, I <show> don't. <laughs> what are okay. the rules? Really simple. I'm going to give you five words. Um, and they all begin with the first letter of the letters of story. And um, you're going to give me just a really quick anecdotal personal story um, that deals with that word. Okay. And at the end of your little anecdote, you will say hashtag book it, hashtag writer's life, or hashtag writing while black. Okay, bookish, writer's life, or writing while black. Yes, and some of them may, you know, maybe all three. Okay. And that's fine. So we're going to go ahead and get this done. Your first word today, Miss Stacy, is silence. Silence. And you want a story about silence? An experience, something. I love silence now that I'm older. I think the first thing that comes to me was being 21 years old doing a summer internship in Albuquerque, New Mexico at uh, what was then the morning newspaper. 
And um, there was one other black writer there. She was an older woman. She was actually a staff reporter and I was an intern and I was renting a room from her. And she got an assignment to go up into the hills of New Mexico to a monastery. And me being a 21 year old with nothing to do for the weekend, she's like, why don't you go up into this monastery? I was like, sure. (laughs) We get up there. She probably was 30 and I was 21 and it's quiet. And they had a whole silence rule and like, the room was like a little Laura Ingalls Wilder room, like with just like a little cot on the edge of a mountain. And like the mountain had echoes. So you literally could not talk above a whisper because you're going to bother these people. And I remember sitting in that room that night with my little lantern, like this is for the birds. And this was your little that. lantern. Oh, yeah. It was a whole monastery. You, you people, people literally flew from around the country to be, it was in Abiquiu, Abiquiu, New Mexico. And people flew around from around the country to go up to this monastery to experience silence. None of them were 21 years old. (laughs) Being like, this is for the birds. When are we leaving? Like, why did I agree to come? And now fast forward 30 years later, how I appreciate silence. Because it is in the silence that I hear God speak to me. It is in the silence that I distill my own thoughts about my life Mm -hmm. and my journey. And I find out what I'm supposed to do next. And sometimes in the silence, the words that I'm supposed to share with others come. So I would say for me, the silence would be writer's life. Oh, that's beautiful. And you just told me what I don't believe. What? Your age. But I'm going to let you have it. (laughs) I did just tell you my age. You did. You did. And I'm going to let you have it. And I believe in those 9.30 p.m. bedtimes, too. Look, (laughs) that is my bedtime. Don't yes. play. That is my bedtime. Okay, that's yes. why we got to hurry up. Your next word is trusting. Trusting? Mm-hmm. Ooh. I trust once I, it takes me a while. When I first have a book idea, I do the typical writer thing of pulling out the notebook because I like to write by longhand, right? Mm-hmm. By hand when I'm brainstorming and I'm getting to know my characters. So I'm almost journaling about my characters. Yes. And so I'll start there. I'll start with their backstories. I do Myers-Briggs analysis on my two or three main characters. And then I let it play around in my head for a few months. I'm taking walks. I'm thinking about it. I'm in the grocery store. Ooh, that's a beautiful name that might be in my book. So by the time I actually sit down to start writing, I'm trusting that the characters are going to tell me who they are and where their journey is supposed to go. So I think that one would be bookish and writer's life. Why does your process sound so familiar? It works. It does. Yeah. So, yeah, because you're character driven. I, that's me. I'm like, I spent a lot of time, invest a lot of time with them. Yeah. And they go everywhere with me. And by the time I sit down, they are real, like yes. more real than the people in my real. house. Yes, they're real people. Thank you for saying that. I think you're the yeah. only other person I've heard say that. And that's very important to me. And that's why, like, I can tell, I tell people, I can write nonfiction anytime. If I got off the phone or this call with the podcast with you now, and I needed to go write an essay or I needed to go write a column, I can do my nonfiction any yep. time of the day. My fiction, I literally have to be in the zone because I have to shut out this real world to live mm-hmm. in that world with that person. So, yeah. 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 Okay. There we go. All right. Overt. Ooh, overt. Oh, goodness. That's a hard one. <laughs> I think overt. Um, hmm. I think I'm an overt person. Overt. Typically, I would say I'm forthright. So when I'm being forthright, I think I'm overt in how I express myself 
as my as a, my own person. You heard me talking about my son in that way. Uh, I'm overt about how I care about my characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm overt in protecting my characters and that space for them because I don't want. I'm not writing a character to be Stacy. I'm not writing a character to be like a real mm-hmm. person. I really am overt in making sure that they are who they are meant to be. So I think mm-hmm. that would be probably writer's life and black writers life mm-hmm. because I are writing while black because my characters are primarily black. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're doing good. Really. You, I mean, cause most people are like, Oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want me to say? Um, and I got this word just from your book, just from reading your book and like all the stuff you put out on, on your social media, redeemable. Ooh, that's a good word. Redeemable. Yeah, I think we're all redeemable. Um, I do write a lot about, I think I tend to write about forgiveness in subtle ways. Mm-hmm. Even uh, Elliot, who we were talking about, the villain Elliot that we don't really care for. Even Bethany, who we don't care for mm-hmm. in their own ways. I try to write them in a way where, yes, they're our villains, but I kind of give you enough backstory to understand how they became to be the right. people that they are in a way. And I, tr- I tend to do that with the folks who feel unredeemable. Like I mentioned my character, Jessica, who's the main character of my novel, Finding Home. I did not like her. She was making decisions. I literally thought, this is so dumb, but I have a hairstylist who's like, she was 26 when I was writing the book and my daughter was in high school. They were like, oh yeah, this happens on reality TV all the time. I'm like, people really live life like this? So I did not think she was redeemable, but by the end of that book, she was. So um, I love writing about redeemable characters because I want that to remind all of us that Mm-hmm. Even on our worst days, we are redeemable. So I think that would be writer's life, bookish, and writing while black. Yeah. Now this last word really isn't a word, but uh, <laughs> it's I love it. I love doing it. So it's yuck, yum. One yuck, one yum. Ooh, yuck and yum. It's hmm. hard to find good Y words, you know. I know. Yum to me is anything chocolate and writing my books gives me an excuse to eat as much chocolate as I want to because I'm like, I need to do what I need to do to get through this book. So we will be eating whatever chocolate we want. And yuck would be the parts of the writing process that you slog through. Like when you have to make the sacrifices on a sunny day to be in living with these characters or when you feel like you're stuck in the middle or when it's 5 a.m. and it's cold and I got to get up and write. So the yuck and yum is the writer's life. Yes. Girl, yes. That, oh, can I quote you on that? The yuck and yum is writer's life. Wow. Well, you know what? That's an article. <laughs> That's a blog post. You really? know what? That is a blog post. Uh, yeah, that we is. might both write that one. We might both write that because I'm like, oh, I've been slogging through. I had a whole conversation with another friend about my book, how long it's mm-hmm. taken to write this book. And I had a whole aha. I was like, that's a whole book and talking with her about it. So, yeah. 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 And so I was like, you did great. Gosh, I'm so glad we finally got this done. Yes. I'm so glad we persevered. Thank you for having me on. I'm honored. I'm so honored. Well, thank you. It's been this season has been like when I say amazing and unexpected and overwhelming and all the things and all the best ways. I was not expecting anybody to say, "Oh yeah, I'd to be on your podcast," but then everybody said yes. That's everybody, 
including, including, because I have to give homework. I play one on this podcast. Uh, so um, your homework is to tell me who you would recommend to oh, be on. Because I, well, the one that's immediately coming to mind is one of my writer mentees. Her name is, she writes under Jackie Hunter. She writes um, middle grade books, like YA books, Jackie okay. Hunter. But she's wisdom, but she's so fabulous. Like you would think she's like 32. Like, I mean, she's like, she's like a huge inspiration. <laughs> Oh, yay, yay, yay. So you want to tell the listeners the best way to get in touch with you, a little bit what you're working on, and then we'll. Sure. Like I said, I have a novel in progress. Um, don't want to give too much away, but I am excited about it. It's another women's fiction novel, mm-hmm. and it's going to have the same themes of women growing together, kind of learning how to navigate life together, uh, picking up the pieces, making, uh, making amends for mistakes from the past. Mm. And, it's a, and it spans two cities. And so, you know, I'm looking forward to that. I think that's all I'll say now. Because again, like I said, I just had to rewrite the beginning. Okay. And uh, I am on Facebook under Stacy Hawkins Adams, Stacy with no E, S-T-A-C-Y, mm-hmm. and then Hawkins Adams, no hyphens. And you can find me on Instagram at Stacy Inspires. But I'm mostly on Facebook and Instagram. Mm-hmm. That's where you'll find me. Okay. Mostly. And then my website, StacyHawkinsAdams.com. So okay. feel free. And to I'll be me. sure to put it all in the uh, in the show notes. And, and any other links that um, that you've given. So, Stacey, thanks so much again. It's been really great. Thank you for having me on. No problem. Have a good night. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me for this session of Black Writer Therapy. Be sure to follow and leave a review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And keep the conversations going on Instagram using our hashtag BlackWriterTherapy. I'm your host and unlicensed therapist, Alishan, reminding you to be kindest to yourself first, always and in all ways. See you guys next week. Bye. Bye.